This is Mind Rolling with David Silver, my partner, and myself, Raghu Marcus. And uh, we haven't talked in a bit, Dave, really. Yeah, the world has changed. Yeah, since then, yeah. Because we, we Dave visited me a few weeks ago, and, uh, and we did a bunch of podcasts. It gives us a break, actually, because we do interviews and stuff, which you've been hearing on Mind Rolling podcast.com so uh this is generally david the spot where we explain to everybody how much support that we need and how this mind pod network most especially has become i mean it's going uh, there is things that you don't even know that are going on and you're one of the principles of this uh, organization well that's because tell- preoccupied with with the passing show of life. Yes. And can I tell you one thing? It just occurs to me, and I, I can't remember telling you before. It's exciting. Okay. We are going to be hosting, uh, non-exclusively, mind you, Tara Brock. Tara is an exceptional Buddhist Theravadan teacher from the Washington area and is uh, close to the rest of our low-hanging fruit family, particularly Jack Cornfield. So, uh, David, this is going to uh, give us a whole new inspiration, and I especially love the point of view from uh, from the opposite sex and how they masterfully present the Dharma. So, did you know this or not? You didn't know it, right? No, I didn't know that. Yeah. But, uh, you know, whenever, that? whenever it's a Buddhist, I'm happy. And we're going to talk a little bit about Buddhism today and how <laughs> seems to me it seems to be that it makes people happy just knowing its concepts changes their whole lives. Isn't that something? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, to me, it's the only thing I want to read unless I read something really totally different. You know? What do you have against Hindus? Nothing. <laughs> I have nothing against. What's that, what, nothing. Kind of, what kind of blasphemy? What kind of <laughs> slander is that? It's terrible. It's terrible. What What is wrong with us, though? We are basically bhaktas, and all we talk about is, and we have Buddhists all around us. Uh, it's Ramdas's fault, really. He made friends with all these Buddhists, and now we, uh, yeah, we're part of that family. Um, but yeah, it's, it's thank it, you, Ramdas, because yeah. I, you know, Buddhism is something that is. It's like they call those termos, you know, it's, it's a secret until you investigate it. Because everybody thinks, they, who's not investigated, everybody thinks they know what it is, and they make these pronouncements that are usually pretty stupid. And then you get into it, and it, 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 a light shines on a, a dark day, as yeah. far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. It's just crystalline, really. So we're going to talk about that today. Which yeah, is we are. But I, can I tell you an experience that I had? I bet it was in the supermarket because you have all your experiences in the supermarket. It's true. All my podcast experiences go on in the supermarket. I guess that's one of the most public places that I go to regularly. And should we promo Whole Foods? Everybody goes to Whole Foods. No. They don't. Not until they sponsor us. I'm sorry. I'm getting getting to be one of those, you know, Bloomberg type people. Yeah. And, And this is what this is all about. This is our spot to to ask you to help us through our donation button, through our Amazon link, through our Audible link, buying some T-shirts, any which way. Because as I said before, this uh, before we introduced that Tara uh, is coming on to the network, that uh, we really do at this point need some some real support, uh, however it may come. Like if, if you just even a couple of dollars uh, a month, if a bunch of people did that, that would make a huge difference. So here's what happened to me anyhow. So I'm checking out at Whole Foods, and a young guy checking me out, a millennial guy, and I never got his name. So if you're listening to this, you'll probably uh, remember our little encounter. And he said to me, I think I know you. I said, really? He said, yeah, you're on that show with Duncan Trussell? And I'm like, yeah, I've been on Duncan Trussell's show. Yeah. He says, oh, I, that's great, great, you know, great stuff, you guys. And uh, 
And I said yes, and we bantered about Duncan a little bit in a very positive manner until the moment that he suddenly blurted out, except for that long-ass intro that he does, not intro, commercial he called it. He goes on and on and on. I said, Duncan, (laughs) my guru, he goes on a little bit maybe. Uh, So I tried to defend him, and he said, I said, well, listen, we have to have a way to support the podcast, the network. See, I, I can hear myself whining already. You know, I was you know, whining to him. Uh, we have to have a way to support the network. And what about you? Are you coming to Whole Foods and you just do it as a service? Why are you asking for money? And then we got into this thing and it, and it ended delightfully. And I immediately called Duncan. I said, Duncan... I'm going to the supermarket, to Whole Foods, and your people are there haranguing me about your commercials. <laughs> we had a big laugh about it. And um, that. Yeah, you know, I just want to, I'm going to interrupt okay. because um, for those of you out there who, who do have similar feelings of begrudgment, you know, like, I don't want to hear this again because I have that when I watch public television, you know, and I'm watching something that, you know, I don't know, British invasion show that's two hours and every you know 12 minutes these two people come in and say it's so wonderful that we can bring you herman's hermits at this time and i just want to scream or throw the tv off the balcony so i understand this <laughs> however mm. you know people have a misconception they know that something like channel you know pbs costs money they for some reason I've, I've encountered this with a lot of people they believe that podcasting is free and easy to do and doesn't cost any money and it really does if we're going to supply a service that really means anything to you. Well, this not. is... And, and, and so we need you to support us. And the recurring support is the one we like best. And honestly, though, we are there's more than podcasts that are part of the MindPod network. And if you go to the site, you'll see all the different off- offerings around different wisdom traditions that we are researching and finding and sharing. And, uh, and then to come, we have uh, some other plans in terms of these are great teachers. We want to make some of their work available and curated in a way that uh, that will act as a as a self-curated online course this is something that we're working we're working on a bunch of different things and and, uh, and the, we've only gotten here because of your support so can please continue to do that and that was my little story for the day dave and by the way but before i leave that subject i do want to recommend something for amazon it's a new book is a book you're going to like Dave, mm-hmm. uh, it explores uh, the '60s under underground radicals, the Weathermen. Of course, we remember them quite well. In fact, I had a friend, a good friend, whose brother uh, was an SDS guy. You remember SDS? Very much. Yeah, and and there was a little bit of a crossover with some of those SDSers with the uh, the Weathermen, and these were these were people who took it upon the SDS was of course a protest movement that was fairly uh, peaceful but of course the weathermen did some um, uh, shall we say counter slightly violent stuff and this this woman Patty Hearst was involved with them and uh, so and and Bill Ayers right who was in the weather underground you remember Dave who was the subject of that stuff with Obama uh, the voting stuff that he he had that uh, organization which no longer he exists. works he works in the Obama White House in some capacity. Oh, really? At this point? Yeah, because I recently saw a photograph of him in the Times or something and saying that he's not you know sort of in the cabinet or anything, but he's some kind of vi- of advisor, mm-hmm. and he definitely was a member of the Weather Underground. Yeah. And we all had real mixed feelings about this because some of the atrocious things that the government was doing deserved some response, but you know it just didn't help, did it? So, Days of Rage is what it's called, okay? And you can go up to, uh, get up to Amazon, and uh, that's just one of the many things that, it's it's amazing how much we all use that service, even though we have some odd thoughts, many of us, about it. Not odd, but uh, realistic thoughts about <laughs> the way you can't even go to a local bookstore anymore but we won't get too far into it because we'd be biting the hand and see we become part of this horrific infrastructure of uh, you know where you can't stop that wheel huh? and that's what obama is facing and every other politician 
there's a certain wheel this this culture is on. Um, but you're not, I, you're not kidding. Yeah. I mean, it's you know, we know we know the logic of how, of how it works. We do. We've known it for a long time. Now, term, you know, I I don't want to harp on. Um, here's something. Every time I bring this up, Dave says to me, "We talked about that shit. I don't want to talk about it anymore." Yeah, I'm going to do the but, same. Thing. And no, but maybe I'll have a different angle that that you might have some friendly openness towards. No, I, I do. Yeah. Um, so this is this, the, the bullshit basically of, uh, the dangerous American myth of corporate spirituality, of course. And we have, we have talked about this ad infinitum, right? Um, it's like when uh, Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella, who's Indian, right? Who says, uh, to a woman who was concerned that her male peers were passing her up for promotion. Don't question the systemic ses- uh, uh, no, he doesn't say that. The writer says, don't question the systemic sexism of corporate America. Just trust in good karma. No, he did say this. He said, trust in good karma to get you ahead. Okay. While his attitude may waves in the blogosphere, in fact, it accurate, accurately represents a form of spirituality that is popular in the West. And so that's what we have, of course, been talking about yoga classes and it's they're all there in their Lululemon threads, you know those high-end clothes for yogis, and fake spiritual bourgeois spirituality that appears all over Facebook. <laughs> Does it not? Well, you know, I'm just I, I'm going to be you know a, a, a wimp for a moment and say that you know it's better than the opposite. In other words, even fake, you know, interest in mindfulness and yoga is better than real, as it were, interest in the pursuit of pleasure and material goods. I don't know about that because... I do. I mean, you come on. I mean, it's better. This shit that you you put enough happy energy into the universe, then you'll be rewarded with material wealth and earthly pleasures, that whole thing. The secret, the secret is the biggest new age film, spiritual film, if it's spiritual. Uh, We are told that we can actually have it all. A rich spiritual life leading to a rich material life. This is America. Yeah, yeah well, that's you know, sad. And then, of course, you, unless you're a rich Republican, decades of widening economic inequality should tell you how faulty that story is. So so this has always been my—David uh, and I have this dialectic all the time. It's not a dialectic because we're on—obviously, uh, we see that world similarly and— and as David just said, we see it in terms of it's better than what might be, although uh, that is suspect uh, argument uh, on one level. But certainly it does give the opportunity for people to even bump into something. And this, uh, David, you sent me this article, which I have to say this is the argument against any of this commercialism of spirituality is screwing us. Well, here's this article David sent, and uh, it's called Just Being Exposed to Buddhist Ideas May Make You Feel More Compassionate, a study find, and not a bullshit study, a real study. You want to talk about it? Yeah, I mean, she said it's by Carolyn Gregoire, and I like your name, Carolyn, and I like your writing, Gregoire. That's quite a name. Buddhists are known for promoting a philosophy of nonviolence, compassion, and interconnection of all beings. According to provocative new research, simply being exposed to Buddhist terminology may be enough to activate tolerance and compassion among both Buddhists and non-Buddhists. And, um, you know, it's like anything else. You can judge this and say, well, you know, it's just more of that New Age sort of blather. But I do believe that it's not, it, it can be interpreted in the same way that, you know, we talk about saying the name, uh, just being enough. If you can't do anything else, then just chant the name. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, so if you're just chanting, you know, Shiva, 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 you know, or, or doing that guy, any chant that gets to your heart, that's better than not doing it. So you could say that people, that these people are right, and this woman's right. Wait, but just knowing about the Buddhist words and seeing some of the artwork and 
beginning to sort of let it affect you can only make you feel. But this was like Stanford University. This is not, that's I what I meant. This is not bullshit. They did a real study along with scientists from Taiwan and Belgium. Uh, and, and they exposed people of different spiritual backgrounds to Buddhist concepts. Yeah. And here it undercut prejudice and it also promoted pro-sociality, which includes having a sense of responsibility for others, feeling as well as feelings of compassion and empathy. So this isn't somebody's, um, you know, saying a few words just to try and make us all feel better that if we're just exposed. This is this is actually a um, is the beauty of this. This is a real study done by uh, an, the mo- one of the most prestigious universities in the United States. Um, so yeah, it's cool. I mean, you know, I that's good. I think intuition tells you this rather immediately, though. I mean, about it's, Buddhism, I, I, about it's, concepts words, in Buddhism. It's going to prove to people who are now like closed to this whole this stuff. It's, oh, there's a study, and now I'm just going to get into Buddhism. How about this? The people who are exposed to words like Buddha, yeah. Dharma, and yeah. awakening in a word puzzle showed yeah. fewer negative associations with African and Muslim people than those who were exposed to Christian or non-religious words. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. We need to inject that in everybody in the world, <laughs> is what we need to do. Uh, and I suppose that... Uh, we are fortunate, really, with all the people that we're involved with, we joke about all the time with the MindPod Network, um, that we're able to share what it is that is being talked about here in a way that presents these concepts and, and terms uh, can be understood. Uh, what You're laughing. He's laughing at me now. <laughs> I'm not Have laughing. I started bullshitting? I just, Is that? I just I'm, feel. I'm good. sorry. I'm, I'm laughing. No, you're it's laughing Skype's at me. Got no problem. Before Skype, you could just have an expression on your face, right? And nobody would know. Right? But now Those, you're. That's no, the. No, it's all positive. This is great that they did this study, and I shouldn't be so. I'm just weird about studies. It's like, eh. but you know, I, we know this. Well, Don't I didn't know it. This is a study that was done. <laughs> okay, you've taken that and ruined it. Um, but uh, going further... I I, I'm, it's great. Did I say it was bad? No. It's going good. further. It's a good thing. I have here... Uh, <laughs> I have here a uh, well, uh, an article. I don't know if you... Did I send this to you? I'm not sure I sent this to you. Um, because th- you, you get angry when I send you anything around mindfulness. He gets angry at me, okay? And because it's another thing we've talked about. We've talked about, you know, uh, the spiritual materialism that Trungpa talked to us about in, like, the early 70s, which is so pretty self-evident with this whole mindfulness movement. Um, So in this article, though, it talked about the origin of mindfulness, Okay. Now, let's discuss where this is from and who wrote it in little details like that. I can't. Oh, well, it's New Yorker. Oh, it's a New Yorker. Is this from the New Yorker? Yeah, because I yeah. printed it out and it didn't have I the... I just feel very strongly that we should... No, you're it. absolutely right. I, I, I'll have correct. it for you in a moment because I have an iPad right next to me. It's written by um, uh, Mitch, Michelle, Michelle Goldberg. It's called The Long Marriage of Mindfulness and Money. Mm. Okay, you can get it online... Michelle Goldberg wrote it. Okay. And the New Yorker has fabulous articles. That's the article that we caught around psychedelics. Remember that a month or so ago? That's one we yeah. read. So New Yorker is good. Yeah, it is. We're like curating the finest new articles. Uh, you know, that's what we do. Um, uh, let's see. Mindfulness and its origins. So, in the late 19th century, the heyday of both the British Empire and Victorian Orientalism. I haven't heard of it. Have you heard that phrase, Victorian Orientalism? It's kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I I don't really know exactly what that means, but you, you kind of can sense what... The, the British, you Brits, were, were involved yeah. with the mystical kind of stuff around the turn of the century, eighteen late 1800s, early 19, right? 
Yeah, so. and the presence of the Brit, you know, the British Raj, the English Raj right. in India. Obviously, a lot of people there observed, you know, the Indian spiritual yeah. Uh, yeah. practices. Yeah. Um, so this guy who was a Brit- British magistrate in Ceylon, uh, his name was Thomas William Rice Davids. Who could have a name like that? found himself charged with adjudicating Buddhist ecclesiastical disputes. Okay, this guy ends up there, and he's doing this shit? He <laughs> set out to learn Pali, and so, you know, the early uh, liturgical language of Theravadan Buddhism, and in 1881, see, this is great. I love when you go back to where this word came from. 1881, he pulled out mindfulness, which was a synonym for attention from uh, a synonym for attention, and it as an approximate translation of the Buddhist concept of sati. Of course, you know we're familiar with Satipatthana uh, sutras, uh, and uh, this translation uh, was rough because sati, which the Buddhists consider the first of seven factors of enlightenment means more nearly and this is this is the best thing in the article Dave. memory of the present mindfulness is is exactly translated as memory think of that memory of the present but yeah. a memory is is endemic with the, the past, past. Yeah. memory of the present i mean it's like a koan or something yeah it is it's unbelievable Just... Um, so it set me off on this whole tangent uh, around what mindfulness really means. Uh, and then it goes on to say that uh, mindfulness became an American brand. See, it's a brand now, right? A hundred mm-hmm. years later, when the Be Here Now Eastern inflected explorations of the 60s came to dovetail with the self-improvement regime. Okay? Who's the be here now guy? <laughs> From the 60s. Uh, that, and, and, it's, and it was a lot, the guy who really put this on the mat was John Kabat-Zinn, a molecular biologist uh, in New England, who uh, we have uh, friends that are quite close and hear about him all the time. He's a good guy. Um, so why he did this, and, and this is the primal probably reason that, uh, again, it, if it takes another reason, that uh, really letting mindfulness be in whatever uh, way that it is presented to people, from stockbrokers to uh, mothers to anybody, uh, and not judge it, which for you and I is tough, or more me, because you're you're pretty good. Um, he believed that secular people who could most benefit from meditation were being turned off by the whiffs of reincarnation and other religious esoterica that clung to it. So that's like when Ramdas came back from India. He said, "There's a few things that we can't be talking about." Right, guru, devotion, reincarnation, blah, blah, blah. And so he, div- so John Cabot, he devised a new and pleasing definition of mindfulness, one that now makes no mention of enlightenment. Okay. Forget it. The awareness that arises through paying attention on purpose in the present moment and non- non-judgmentally is mindfulness. So to me, that's a whole other reason that um, somebody is going to be able to use this, even if it's used in a way uh, expecting results of any kind. That is the hardest concept, I think, for us as Westerners to get beyond. Um, on my own experience, no matter what would happen, and, and things things do happen when you do get really... Uh, in, into meditative states, and I, I don't mean just mindfulness, I'm talking more about uh, meditation, things do happen 
that uh, bring you into very deep and um, uh, moments filled with peace and uh, expansion and feeling interconnected. Um, So um, I think that it's... Yeah, but I mean, it's like that, just to, you know, throw my two cents in here. I, I just wrote this poem. It's called In the 60s, I was into the extraordinary, and now I'm into the ordinary. And that's kind of what I think about mindfulness. Where's like the rest light. of the poem? What? That's the poem. It's a whole poem. Oh, it's, a, it's like a coin. Because that's all I wanted to say was, right. that, you know, mindfulness, it's uh, whatever it is, your life it is. And you can change it the way you think you can change it and all that. But whatever's in front of you happening around you, to be mindful of it. And, and um, you know, compassion being created or generated by that mindfulness mm. and human kindness. And so the mindfulness is not a tool in order to achieve an end, as you said. Or, you know, make a really good hedge fund company. But it happens all the time. I yeah, mean, I can remember getting feeling those feelings through meditative process over the years and then there there was no end to the you know the even most subtle desire for those to reappear experiences whenever we have experiences that make us feel good in any way that's yeah. a toughie and so to walk into something and, and as we were talking about not expecting a result i mean the most gross level is a stockbroker expecting to get uh more uh, more sales that month or whatever. Anybody expecting any kind of wealth gain of any sort, relationship, whatever it is. I mean, that's the grossest level uh, that people... T- but people who take that on never know something else might happen that takes exactly. them to a deeper level. And I guess that's what we're really talking about. What about all these books? Okay, so the whole thing, the genre, though, is kind of funny, too. Here's a different mindful mindful work... The mindful way through depression, mindful moments, mindful teen, mindful child, mindful eating, mindful way through stress. But there isn't a mindful sex one. Why don't we think of, I mean, wouldn't that be huge? Mindful sex. How come nobody's done that? Okay, I know you out there, somebody's going to take this on and make a million dollars and... I mean, I think it's all cool, you know, because the alternative is is so much worse, which is, you know, no no fascination in the media whatsoever with anything close to this, which is this our experience when I was growing up in England and then in the United States, where any kind of interest in any kind of meditation or whatever you want to call it was deemed to be ridiculous and to the far out beyond words, even for people who were kind of supposed to be hip. <clears throat> so now the fact that the the concept of stillness, let's not call it mindfulness, but just abiding or, or learning how to, to abide with what is actually happening with your life uh, can only, I think, increase people's capacity to be less cold-blooded about life and less, I don't know, less grateful. Um, people getting bored because they don't make enough money or whatever, you know, the gross level, you know. So suddenly they do a little mindfulness and they do make, they do do well. Their employees like them more. Their company works better. Everything, and they, and they, wow, this mindfulness is really working. And then suddenly beyond that, as you say, a moment comes when they have a doorway. And they go, wow, I don't need to make millions of dollars anymore. In fact, I'd like to be like this guy Price who's got this company in New York and makes a lot of money. I don't know what he does, but he decided to, he gets a million dollars a year. He's the CEO of his company. Mm-hmm. And last week, he decided to make everybody's salary the same. And he went from $1 million a year to 70000 which is what most people who work for him earn. And he has a couple of hundred people. And he's become quite a big deal because people are saying, why are you doing this? And he said, because it's just ridiculous that I should be earning a million dollars and they should be earning 70000 Wow. I, we should equalize this. And in doing so, create a much more compassionate vibe between the employees and management and me. And the whole thing. But he wasn't doing it with an end in sight. He really felt bad. He said, I feel bad about earning all that money and I'm not earning enough. 
So let's just change that. And, you know, he's been on Bloomberg TV and Wall Street Journal and people saying, well, it won't last. Whereas he says, as he talks to people in mainstream business now, he's excited a lot of interest from a lot of people who are running businesses of his size to be more mindful of the lives of his employees than, he, than they have been. So that's a good use of mindfulness. It's like just being mindful of what kind of paradigm you are running. Yeah. You know, and it's like 150 people. And most of the time, they, most people get treated kind of badly, I think. Yeah. Wow. That is unbelievable. I've forgotten his name. He's called I, Price is his surname. Mm -hmm. And if you Google him and just put, you know, I don't know, 70,000 salary cap, you'll find him. Wow. Um, I, don't, I don't know whether that had to do with anything, but that's the way it is today. <laughs> uh, you know, I want to talk about this other article. Okay, go. What is it? Oh, it's it's called. Um, yeah, that. Raghu sent me this article, which is uh, entitled "The Buddha Awakening: Integral Expanding and a Second Axial Age for Humanity." And it's by Dwayne Elgin. It was written a couple of months ago, and it's great. I mean, we both read it. It seems a little esoteric at first, but then as you get into reading it, it's, it's good. Okay, I'm going to say where it was published originally in the Journal of Integral Theory and Practice. You can get that uh, at Walmart, I think, that magazine. <laughs> uh, you know, I didn't do my usual um, headline, you know, like highlighting of things. But I did. I got to tell you one thing because it got too dense for me, but it had one part that because I'm always interested in whatever anybody has to say about um, sort of translating the the fundamental or one of the couple of fundamental things of Buddhism is emptiness. That's such a hard concept, right? Um, yeah, that's what this whole thing is sort of about, really. Well, somewhat. Um, but it's about uh, this crazy thing that uh, Gautama Buddha was only half as enlightened as a modern sage has the potential to be. I mean, it's this fantastical... And Wilbur, who you probably yeah. heard of. Well, I think it was also Andrew Cohn. Uh, it's a dialogue with Andrew Cohn that was published in Enlightened X magazine a few years ago. Okay. You can just go to the link and you'll find all yeah. this. Stuff. Yeah, right. Um, our link, right? Mine... Mind rolling, yes. Um, so, the two things, two fundamental fundamental dimensions are the realm of emptiness and the realm of form. Okay, so what is emptiness? Emptiness is the timeless, unmanifest ground of being. Toughy, right there. Timeless. Okay, we can kind of get timeless, unmanifest ground of being, and the realization that primordial emptiness has uh, has traditionally been what spiritual enlightenment is all about okay it's what the buddha called nirvana and that means nothing is arising okay so i guess if you think on practical terms can you imagine you're sitting here there's not one thought stuff that comes at you noise people talking telephones cell phones everything we got going, none of that makes any dent. There's nothing from you that is interacting with that thing, either in your mind, in your body, or outside. Nothing is, ar is arising. Okay, so It's hard to imagine. It's a state of consciousness essentially similar to deep, dreamless sleep in that there's no pain, no right. self, no suffering, no desire, none of that. It's a place of peace, stillness, and freedom beyond the turmoil of manifest existence. And discovering that unmanifest emptiness has always been seen as one way to find liberation from the illusion, samsara. So his view of the Buddha's awakening is that of an experience of cessation where nothing is arising. And there's perfect peace and stillness beyond the t uh, turmoil. I mean, but the, the, that's, you know, that is the Buddhist view. But then he he writes about stuff that takes it into a much more sort of, I think, understandable place. You know, because he talks about, he says, 
Our failure to recognize the flux and fluidity of existence produces an inaccurate and therefore unsatisfying relationship with the flow of life. That we don't in any way investigate, as generally speaking, human beings don't investigate what's going on here. And he's saying it's like a movie, 24 frames a second. You know, and in this case, it's too minute for us to see, but in fact, it's being created and, and destroyed simultaneously billions of times a second. And if we could see that, we wouldn't be able to live in this incarnation, really. But what he is saying is that that emptiness is in incredibly alive. Hmm. That in other words, the emptiness is not emptiness like there's nothing in there, an abyss, space, you know, whatever. it's more like creation and destruction is happening all the time forever. And the only reality is now, and the only tomorrow's reality will be tomorrow. And that, you know, this is interdependence plus cognizant emptiness. That it's alive. It's not an abyss of death. Because hmm. if you just, I mean, if, if people just just listening to, you know, the primordial, blah, 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 you know, then, well, what is that? What are we talking about? You die, you go into the primordial, what the fuck does that mean? What's it mean? It doesn't mean anything. It only means something if we connect our heart to it, which means that, you know, as he says in the article, it's all about alive emptiness. Yeah. That it lives. It actually lives. We, and it, it is one. But, you know, he's so clever about this. Listen to this. He says, uh, he says, he says, first of all, we're just beginning to evolve into understanding what the Buddha said 2,000 years later. You know, I mean, it's like, oh, my God, it's still a, a thing that can be explored every day by every million people and find different things in it that, that weren't found yesterday. Because that in itself is an example of the growingness of the Buddha's, you know, words. Okay, so then he says, it may be beneficial to consider that the full depth and meaning of the Buddha's awakening is still being discovered after more than 2,000 years. As the Buddha said, this insight is, quote, deep hard to see, difficult to awaken to, quiet and excellent, not confined by thought, subtle, sensed by the wise. And that's the key, sensed by the wise. You know that at a certain point, whatever your karma is, who knows? I don't know anything about that. But I know that at a certain point, you sense things beyond science and beyond organized religion, beyond any religion. Beyond, it's just you sense suddenly that this... Nirvana is an alive entity, but like in a dimension that we, we, we can only aspire to. We, we can't know it because we're in a human incarnation. But the siddhas know it, and that's why they're siddhas. Well, the Buddha did say we can be free of suffering, and we can understand emptiness. Depends yeah. what billionth lifetime you're, you know, which one you're on. Um, can what? I... Uh, one thing that really hooked me, though, here, was so when when the he talks about he's only half enlightened, right? I'm like, what are you talking about? Um, well, Ken, Ken Wilber does, not, yeah, not. Ken Wilber. Yeah, and I'm saying, what is what is he talking about? And um, so he's saying that the Buddha realized emptiness perfectly. So from the point of view of that traditional understanding, he was enlightened, right? Makes sense. He experienced a perfect oneness in consciousness that transcended the multiplicity of manifestation, time, and form. And that seems perfectly understandable, right? A, a definition of a fully enlightened being. But about 800 years after the time of Gautama Buddha, an extraordinary gentleman by the name of Nagarjuna, of course we know uh, that uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, I don't know how much he speaks uh, on uh, Nagarjuna, came along and pointed out, if you're serious about finding ultimate oneness, then you can't just be looking for nirvana divorced from samsara, illusion, because that's still dualistic. You have to be looking instead for the union of of nirvana and samsara, the union of emptiness and form, the union of the unmanifest and the manifest, which Nagarjuna, Nagarjuna called non-duality. And that last description, I mean, 
Of course, I have no idea about any of this. We're just reading this stuff because, as David says, it, uh, unless experienced through the heart, it is just uh, mental calculations. But they're they're good because they lead us yeah, places. They are. They're good. You know, we, they it's are. better than thinking about some of the other shit that we think about. Um, but what about at the end when he quotes all these people and talks about all these incredible, like science fictional approaches to stuff? Remember that? I mean, it's like. But uh, can I just say one thing that uh, yeah, yeah. why this uh, triggered me, uh, the union of emptiness and form and unmanifest and manifest, is because that's what they called these siddhas that lived in the last century. Ramana Maharshi, Shirdi Sai Baba, uh, Neem Karoli Baba, uh, um, Nityananda, those beings, uh, Sri Ramakrishna, those li- beings, although Sri Ramakrishna actually stayed in form because he did not want to, he wanted to continue the bliss of worshiping mother. He was very, he could go from form to, he could be in either one. But all these other beings, and you know, uh, basically hung in that place. Why they were called siddhas is they were able to... Uh, transcend emptiness and form which is what they're talking about or union whatever you want to call it and so this is an amazing description of what i understood of these beings to be uh, these what these beings are and and i of course personally experienced one of them and and that description would be very apt because um i could never whenever i was with maharaji in person there was never any feeling of there being a something that I could uh, bounce off of like you do with another human being. There, mm-hmm. there was no, uh, it, it, it was it was the strangest experience uh, that, of course, I've ever had. Uh, strange is a funny word, uh, extraordinary. So this, uh, that's why, uh, this really uh, took me, Dave, that part of the article. Yeah, well, that's like crucial because it's saying that when we, know about those people beings it can help us you know in this realization that's incredible you know uh, later in the piece he talks he quotes suzuki and says my solemn proclamation is that a new universe is created every moment that's dt suzuki the zen scholar and i mean that that you know and then his holiness said at the heart of buddhist cosmology is the idea that multiple world systems, including our own universe, are in a constant state of coming into being and passing away. And I mean, between Suzuki and His Holiness Dalai Lama, mm-hmm. you know, and then another one which I got to the beginning of the universe is now, for all things are at this moment being created. And the end of the universe is now, for all things are at this moment passing away. Alan Watts. You know, and then just the idea that this thing that the wise can sense that he mentions in the article. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not saying I'm wise, but occasionally I sense it and I can't even put any words on it. Not cognizant emptiness, not even the word heart. It's just not, it's beyond words. So, but this helps to have this interpretation of Buddha and also the clarification that Buddha, it's, uh, you know, it seems to me pretty damn absurd ground to say that he was not really. You know the Buddha. You know, wasn't the Buddha in the sense that he no, was that's that's half in light. I think it's just a way for him to play around with this yeah, thing yeah. of Nagarjuna, which which is is beautiful, and and I kind of liked what he did. Of course, no one, nobody who is not Buddha understands anything about what true enlightenment is. So, um, uh, but the, I like I like this part, Dave. Um, Interdependent origination is the law of causality, okay? When uh, which the Buddha discovered at his awakening, interdependent origination, complete interconnectedness of absolutely every uh, anything, every every everything is everything. It revealed to him the whole truth of existence. And in penetrating, he became the awakened one. And here's, here's why this stuff is just, even though we intellectualize it and we go on about it and we're interested in it and it gives us some framework to have a vantage point to look at and not get so self-involved, 
this is really it. What he saw was a total vision of how and why all beings throughout space and time are entangled in illusion for countless lives, as well as his own past lives in his progress toward liberation. So that happens. A, a being like this can look back at every, that's what we experience this directly, knowing our past, present, and future. It's in India, it's in the Hindu thing, it's called Antarayami, knower of all hearts. Um, this was the extraordinary insight that distinguished his teachings from others. So it is said, whoever sees interdependent origination sees the Dharma, the truth. Whoever sees the truth sees the Buddha. And the fact is, and this is one of the main tenets of Buddhism, you, we can aspire to some, at, at the very least, some true understanding of, of these concepts. And as we stated in the beginning of these things, just hearing of these concepts of Buddhist compassion and so on, uh, and how they affect us by their very conceptual identity in our in our minds and hearts and and they they actually change people we have a chance to always be able to uh to absorb even the tiniest tiniest molecules of of what the buddha had to offer god he's smiling again listen everybody out this is the second time that i i feel like i've gotten to a point it's it's good i'm just listening it's true we get a molecule. I smile at the word molecule. Oh, molecule. Well, I was trying to think of something really small. If we get, it doesn't matter. It's it's not quantitative. It's qualitative. No. And once you get that, I go back to the trust thing. You know, once you get that, and that's uh, you have trust, and then you can really, with a little bit of trust, you can absorb these things uh, in a way that's tough when you've got a lot of doubt going on or cynicism. Or any kind of uh, those things that harden the heart. All right, I'm st- I'm not saying another word, Dave. Well, no, I, the, the, he did. You, those things, you know, are, are samsara, and he's in the article. He very clearly talks about, you know, that this vision of samsara and nirvana is one, even though it's two things. It's not. It is the one, you know, that you're you're able to, like the Buddha, see all his past lives, all his future, all the past Buddhas countless past Buddhas. He was just one, which is something that I didn't know until I started really you know, checking into this years ago. Oh, my God. There are thousands of Buddhas. And but, he was but, just, you know, yeah. th- thousands. And that he was just Sakyamuni Buddha, which is still amazing because he's the Buddha of our time. Yeah. You know this thing with, uh, like, John Cabot, Zinn, uh, we're going to hear some doggies now. Yeah, that's okay. That's because my wife is my beautiful, lovely Saraswati is home from hard work at the clinic. Um, is it loud, Dave? It's pretty yeah. loud. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's not actually as loud as if they were in the room. They're not. I know where they are, and they're a distance away. Okay, we've run out of. We're frothing at the mouth at this point, everybody. Uh, we're we're gonna split, and we. Well, are, it's because these words, you know, you get to the point where we're talking about something that's wordless. So it's like, who wants to talk more words? Yeah, we're wordless. We're, in fact, the next podcast, which will be number one hundred eight or something, by oh, the way, you're kidding. No, I, I. Well, this is. Who counts this shit? It's like, wow. I think the next one is 108, not this one. So Mm -hmm. I think there's going to be no talking on that one. It'll just be room noise. Wordless combination of nirvana nirvana and samsara. Yeah, that'll get us a lot of support. It uh, might. People will just groove on it. Driving, you're driving in traffic, you just got this beautiful room noise. All right. So thank you, everybody. Uh, And keep... uh, uh, we appreciate feedback, so give us more feedback, and uh, we, of course, appreciate the support, and uh, we're happy to have this family. It's really, uh, it's really growing. I mean, the website and everything that's going on there is fun. Mindpodnetwork.com. Oh, that's it. I Now I know. Shit. I've got to tell you this, Dave. Okay? Mm-hmm. 
our uh, wonderful Rachel, who is part of the MindPod Network, uh, sent and put up a video she found when she was doing some research. And it's yeah. about a young, he's 10 years old, uh, uh, Tibetan, who comes from a Seattle, a, a completely West, they, the westernized Tibetan family. I mean, they speak perfect English. And this kid, when he was three years old, was learning uh, various prayers, long prayers, and so on and so forth. And uh, they knew that he was obviously someone who needed to go into the monastery. So they took him to India, and he went into a Nepalese uh, Tibetan uh, monastery. At that age, okay, three, he's 10. He's been studying there for all these years. Maybe it was five. I'm sorry. It was five. At three, he started doing all this shit. And it just, you know, he's like absolute proof. 100% of reincarnation, that there's no possibility of this. And he's been there, and, and he left his parents. It's not a problem. They visit him once a year. Go to MindPod Network and look for this video. It'll be up on one of our wisdom uh, presentations because it's you will love this, David. It is so incredible to see this little tiny dot completely um, present as a llama mm. at five years old. It's... <laughs> It's just staggering, staggering. I saw oh. that What's his name again? Too long. Couldn't remember it. Oh, okay. I can't remember what the hell we were talking about three minutes ago. Uh, no, you know what I mean? Remember his name? Yeah, but we'll we'll post it. We'll post everything. That's yeah. For people yeah. like the us, we need postings. Um, so thanks, Dave, for the uh, opportunity. Thank you very much. And we'll, we'll see. see next we'll see everybody next time, next time on Mind Rolling Podcast. Bye bye. <laughs>